You're listening to Making Medicine, stories from the early stage life sciences ecosystem, a podcast that explores the people and deals that have led to the medicines, devices, and technologies that keep us healthy. Let's get into the show. All right. Wanting to make the best use of this hour. Thank you, everyone, for joining us uh, for today's conversation, the Inflation Reduction Act, Implications for Biopharma Companies and Patients. My name is John Stanford. I'm the executive director of Incubate, the voice of the early stage life science ecosystem. And I'm joined today by an incredible lineup of experts from DLA Piper, where we're going to pull apart the implications and consequences of the drug pricing provisions recently part of the Inflation Reduction Act, which was signed into law in August. Many thanks to those of you uh, in the policymaker world. We have a lot of folks, uh, staff from Congress who have joined us to further explore uh, the consequences of the legislation. Uh, We have stakeholders from across the biotech community, especially uh, thanks to the Life Science Venture Capital members of Incubate who are participating here today. Uh, This is a really critical discussion and one that's going to shape a lot of questions about policy and drug development over the coming decade. Incubate is a nonprofit advocacy organization that tries to bring the life science venture capital voice uh, to Washington, D.C. for the development of policies that can benefit patients. Uh, As usual, um, through our Incubate Policy Lab, we are always seeking to inform policymakers on uh, the realities of the life science ecosystem, but we always try to bring in the best and brightest, and that's exactly what we're doing here today. A lot of thanks to the DLA Piper team, uh, who will be doing most of the presentation today. I'm going to turn it over to Kirsten Axelson, DLA's policy advisor. She's joined by two of her colleagues, Jim Greenwood, uh, senior policy advisor and chair of the Life Sciences and Policy Advocacy Group at DLA Piper. And finally, to really get into the details, we're honored to be joined by Jeff Levitt, uh, who is of counsel and chair of the FDA Practice Group. Many thanks to DLA Piper for joining with Incubate uh, for this important conversation. Uh, We'll do a bit of a presentation and then open it up uh, for Q&A and discussion. And so with that, turning it over to a good friend, uh, Kirsten Axelson, the floor is yours. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thanks so much for that introduction, John, and uh, really appreciate everyone who has dialed in to be part of this presentation. As John mentioned, I'm Kirsten Axelson. I have worked in policy and biopharma strategy for around 25 years. Um, In addition to being an advisor to DLA Piper, I'm also the secretary and co-founder of a nonprofit organization called the Preparedness and Treatment Equity Coalition, which is funded by life sciences companies and uh, gives grants for to foster health system change to achieve greater equity in healthcare outcomes um, between whites and uh, Blacks, Hispanics, um, and Native Americans and Asians. I'm going to ask my two uh, co-workers, uh, Jim and then Jeff, to just give a few sentences about their background, um, and then we'll jump into the presentation. Okay, thanks, Kirsten. So as John said, I chair the the firm's uh, Life Sciences Policy and Advocacy Group. I've been doing this for a little over two years. Prior to that, I was the president and CEO of BIO, the Biotechnology Innovation Organization, for almost 16 years. And prior to that, I served in Congress for 12 years on the Health Subcommittee of the House Energy and Commerce Committee. And uh, hi, everyone. Jeff Levitt here. As John said, I co-chair the DLA Piper FDA practice group. I joined DLA Piper after spending uh, several years at Pfizer, where I was chief regulatory counsel. 
and had also extensive work with pharma, chaired the legal section executive committee and did a lot of work with the organization. So very happy to join you today and thank you. Thank you. So, you know, the, the, the goals for this workshop today, so at the conclusion of about an hour we're going to spend together, uh, people who are attending uh, will understand the elements of the new uh, law, the Inflation Reduction Act, that uh, most directly affect drug pricing um, and current and future revenues, um, and uh, which, of course, has an implication for the value of investment in new medicines. Um, we'll also talk about some of the effects on uh, patients um, in terms of what they can be expected to spend, which patients are most likely to benefit, and then also some of the potential unintended consequences of this law, which is uh, really the biggest intervention in drug pricing um, since the Medicare Modernization Act was passed. I'm going to encourage people to drop uh, questions into the chat, uh, either for me, Jim, or Jeff, and then also John will be uh, taking questions at the end. If you have, I uh, want to hold yours until the end, that's fine too. Um, so, you know, we'll start off with sort of how did we get here? You know, a theme of drug policy has been cost reduction. And I think over time, in fact, there's been a more and more intense focus on shorter term cost reduction, um, despite the fact that drugs are often uh, one of the most cost-effective forms of healthcare intervention, their prices are quite transparent. You know, people have hospitals and doctors in their districts, um, and they have faces and names on a natural affinity where uh, I think for the drug industry, uh, it has been harder uh, to um, really make that uh, connection and establish uh, the importance of biopharma revenues to future investment in new drugs. Um, you know, the entitlement spending continues to grow faster than the economy and uh, funding is needed to make the necessary investments in um, energy and infrastructure and a big part of the money that was found for the investment in this Inflation Reduction Act was in uh, on the backs of drugs. Um, and so that is uh, what we'll be going over, how, how the funding is coming out of biopharma in the coming years. You know, these the elements that are in the Inflation Reduction Act have really been part of this uh, policy uh, discussion for years um, and have been raised, uh, not necessarily passed in all the way going back to you know, the Medicare Modernization Act. Many of these concepts were raised um, for discussion during the Affordable Care Act debate. Um, I think a few things that are notably absent is there is no focus on value or payment for outcomes or payment for health. This is a pretty direct focus on price and bringing prices down. There is no new provisions for transparency PBM practices. There is nothing that will help pass the rebates and discounts onto patients. I also think it's important to remember that almost every time something big, a big new innovation happens in biopharma, whether it was the introduction of the highly effective HIV drugs to the hepatitis C drugs to now the COVID vaccine, it has been followed by a pretty uh, significant public backlash against the industry. And so I don't think this is entirely unexpected, but I guess unfortunate um, that right on the heels of the industry developing a number of very effective treatments to combat the COVID epidemic, we are seeing uh, one of the biggest expansions of a policy that uh, is largely detrimental to the next generation of innovation. So, you know, just kind of considering uh, at a high level, what's changing? Um, so today, Medicare and private insurance, the prices are competitively negotiated. So there's a list price that you see for medicine. And um, beyond that, 
for formula replacement, uh, biopharma manufacturers and insurers and PBMs negotiate for contracts, which where there is a discount uh, in exchange for a more favorable formula replacement, which typically means uh, less cost sharing for the patient and less bureaucratic hurdles for them and their physician. Um, the Inflation Reduction Act focuses on Medicare, which we'll see in just a moment, um, is a very large share of total biopharma revenues in the U.S. Um, and adds uh, public price setting into a system that is now privately negotiated. So this law will have a big effect on um, conditions that are for broad, um, high impact spending in uh, the elderly and the disabled, which includes uh, cancer, macular degeneration. Um, and you will see that uh, biopharma revenues and returns to investment in those conditions can be expected to go down towards the end of the product life under the provisions in this new law. So this is the system today, uh, the distribution of, of spending in the U.S. on drugs by insurance type. And, you know, what you see is now those, those solid white slices are the parts of the, the healthcare system in the U.S. where drugs are largely privately negotiated. So those discounts are um, part of a confidential uh, contract between the payer, uh, and those discounts have been going up over time. In fact, uh, so much so that the net uh, rate of price inflation has in drugs has been below consumer inflation um, for many of the last 10 years. Um, the current, uh, currently, the uh, VA and Medicaid have uh, what amounts to price controls um, through mandatory discounts and inflation penalties. And so the uh, additional portion of the U.S. healthcare market that will be price controlled is that Medicare slice. Not every drug in Medicare will be under the price controls in this provision, but a large portion and growing portion over time. Uh, this will affect the cost and access for the 64 million people who are insured in um, the Medicare benefit. And uh, I'm getting a question about the slides. I will be sharing the um, the presentation. I do not think we'll be sharing these slides themselves. You know, the ways that the Inflation Reduction Act um, is affecting biopharma companies and those that depend on medicines, there are basically four key provisions. First of all, the law mandates direct price setting between the federal government and drug manufacturers for a select number of therapies. You may see that the wording they use in the law is negotiation. Um, I'm deliberate in using the term price setting. Uh, there's a very steep penalty that basically amounts to all of the revenues. Um, for a drug, if a manufacturer refuses to participate, that's not a negotiation. That is basically price setting. There's really not an option to walk away um, unless a company chooses to you know, pull all of its drugs from uh, Medicare and Medicaid, which, as you just saw, is a big portion of U.S. revenues and also patients depend on them. It also uh, requires the manufacturer to pay a rebate back to the federal government when the drug price grows faster than consumer inflation, and that will cover all units in Medicare that is already a provision that is part of Medicaid and the 340B program. Uh, it limits out-of-pocket spending for costs in Medicare Part D. Um, this will be a particular benefit for people who have high drug costs, uh, and also there are out-of-pocket limits on insulin and cost-sharing waivers for vaccines, or the cost-sharing for vaccines will be waived. Uh, and finally, it redesigns the Part D benefit. I think many of us have been hearing about the donut hole since uh, the Part D benefit was passed. It's always been a problematic aspect of a design. Patients don't like that their costs were unpredictable. The donut hole or coverage gap will go away. And uh, manufacturers will take on uh, more of the liability and the cost for high cost patients, as will insurers. Um, and we'll get into the details of how this will all work. 
uh, while this, the many of the concepts uh, that were passed into this law have been in discussion for years, this law was actually passed relatively quickly with not a lot of time for input from the industry. So, you know, the industry is going to have to very quickly um, figure out how to prepare for uh, these new provisions and new costs. Um, and again, as we'll get into, there is uh, very limited oversight, um, not a lot of opportunity for input or to push back on the price setting and um, and the amount of uh, new uh, financial liabilities um, that the industry is taking on. So first, uh, price setting. Probably many of us have heard uh, some of the the, the critics um, of this law say, oh, it's only a few drugs. Um, well, it, the uh, there will be price setting for the biggest drugs in Medicare, and uh, they will be the drugs that have been on the market for nine years for small molecules. So those are typically pills that you would pick up at a pharmacy and take by mouth, um, or 13 years for large molecules. So those are typically the drugs that are injected. Um, should be noted that the drugs will be selected for price setting two years prior to that, so seven and 11 years, but the price controls will take effect two years after they are selected and the price setting process occurs. Um, these drugs we've picked from among the 50 largest selling drugs in Medicare Part D and the 50 largest selling drugs in Medicare Part B. Um, and these drugs need to be without uh, generic competitors or biosimilars. There is a possibility for a drug price setting to be delayed if uh, a biosimilar is sort of imminent, meaning that they don't want to discourage the biosimilar from uh, coming into the market through price setting if it's sort of preparing to enter the market. Some drugs are out of scope. Uh, those are orphan drugs that treat only one rare disease, um, drugs for which the total expenditures under parts B and D are under 200 million per year until 2028, plasma-derived drugs, and drugs where the expenditures are less than 1% of total parts B&D spending, um, and they are a huge portion of that manufacturer's revenues. Again, that is a provision that will sunset. Um, and finally, drugs are out of scope that are bundled into a service package under Part B. That really takes a relatively small uh, number of drugs off the table. Um, so over time, you see uh, this cumulatively will amount to being a lot of medicines because once a drug is price set, it is price set um, until it has generic or biosimilar competition. Um, the price that is set by the government will be offered to all pharmacies, individuals, and providers uh, for the benefit of Medicare enrollees, but should not be offered to Medicaid or 340B. However, again, as I mentioned, there is uh, not an oversight mechanism um, to ensure that these prices do not uh, kind of bleed into other parts of the market. Hey, Garrison, this is Jim. Yes. Um, just on that point, uh, could you clarify, you talked about they're, on, they're, they're price controlled as long as there is no generic competition or biosimilar. Um, could you speak to not generic, but, but brand competition from another, from a competitor? That is a really good point, Jim. Um, so you're going to see when we get to the drugs that are currently in the top uh, 10, many of them have branded competition. And that branded competition has led to uh, pretty robust uh, discounts for many of these drugs to get formulary access. So if a drug has three or four branded competitors, um, it doesn't matter. Um, and in fact, uh, those discounts that the companies have been offering over time are going to drive down the initial price offer uh, that CMS makes um, because their job is to get the price below where it currently is, even if where it currently is, is pretty low and pretty discounted. So thanks. That's a good point. 
So, you know, just considering what's potentially affected, the pink slice and the red slice represent, you know, just about half of all uh, drug spending in Medicare, adding up both parts B and parts D. Um, and so over time, as the number of drugs that are price controlled and remain price controlled, you're thinking about a pretty large part of the market that is affected. Um, for an example, and these are not necessarily the drugs that will be selected. Um, these are the drugs that in this is the top 10 sales in 2020. Some of these may not qualify, but again, just for an illustration, what I think is important to note here is how different these drugs are, right? Some of them actually have a relatively low uh, annual cost per beneficiary and affect a lot of people. Some of them have a fairly high, a higher uh, cost per beneficiary and affect a small number of people. Many of them, as Jim noted, have brand competition. Um, and as you look at the distribution among therapeutic areas, they are quite concentrated in uh, really three areas, cancer, cardiovascular disease, and diabetes. Um, when looking at uh, Part B, I think what you'll see is Part B is both a smaller slice of the benefit and the drugs uh, tend to have uh, smaller uh, revenues. So, uh, when you get into the top uh, 10 or top 50 in Part B, it ends up being a much larger slice of all Part B drugs. Again, these are not necessarily the ones that are going to be price controlled, but these are just the top 10 uh, right now in terms of sales. And, and um, Tirsa, I, mm -hmm. I think um, I think in both those lists, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that not only in the, they won't necessarily be chosen, I agree with that, but they're not only uh, among the top 10 in terms of cost of Medicare, but they also will have crossed the, the, the number of years threshold um, by the uh, time of the first uh, effective year. I think I, possibly I'm not going to affirm that because I did just take the top 10 drugs. So I would want to look at how many years each of these have been on the market, but uh, many of them will. Um, but yes, that's a good point. You know, noting here on these top, uh, the Part B drugs, they do tend to, again, be somewhat smaller populations, somewhat higher uh, cost per beneficiary, which, again, is what is expected in the top Part B drugs. They tend to be the more specialty drugs that are administered by the physician. Um, and again, here you see a very high proportion of the sales here are in just a few conditions, uh, cancer being the biggest one. So then let's think about what this is going to mean for pricing. Uh, so the red bars on these slides are current um, current market prices. Um, the AWP is is a published price um, and quite often is heavily discounted to a um, insurer for formulary placement. In fact, the average Part D net price after rebates is about fifty three percent of the AWP. Um, the non FAMP price is not a publicly available price. It's reported to the VA. And that is the uh, price after discounts to non-federal, uh, I'm sorry, it's the price paid by wholesalers uh, by non-federal customers. Um, so the law uh, basically sets a maximum price and that is the maximum price. That is not the, it can go below that. CMS can offer a price that is below that. Um, the maximum price is gonna be a percentage off of this non-FAMP price. Um, and for the newer drugs, it will be, 75% uh, of the non-FAMP price, going all the way down to 40% of the non-FAMP price for drugs that have been on the market for 16 years or more who still don't have generic or biosimilar um, competition. These yellow bars represent what that is as a percentage of the AWP. Um, so what you see is uh, in the newer drugs, it's fairly close to the discounted price in Medicare after rebates, and then it goes down steeply after that. 
However, even though the average is fairly close to the discounted price in Part D after rebates, it doesn't mean that drugs will necessarily keep their current price in Medicare. First of all, there, this is an average. There are some drugs that have much bigger discounts and much smaller discounts. And again, as I mentioned, CMS is charged with bringing the price down as low as possible. So these are the ceiling prices, not the floor, and not necessarily what manufacturers will be able to expect from the negotiation. Um, and again, it's not a negotiation, it's a price setting. Um, taking a look at this for the Part B drugs, um, again, this is an estimate where comparing to uh, average sales price, which is in the current price that is used for reimbursement in Part B, you see, again, somewhat similar levels of discounts relative to the ASP when you, again, take that percentage of the non-FAMP price. Um, this is These are all estimates derived uh, from prices that were published for Part D, so take this as it is, but um, basically the Long and short of it is um, the price setting will have a significant impact on biopharma revenues for drugs uh, that are towards the end of their, that have been on the market for a significant number of years and fall under the domain of this price setting policy. So this is how the process will work. Um, and it starts very quickly. Uh, in September, 2023, for the first round of price setting, which is in effect in 2026, and then going forward, it will always be sort of two years before the price is effective. CMS will select from the top drugs and publish a list of selected drugs using CMS data. They will publish that list, and that is uh, there's not a lot of room for pushback there on which drugs are selected. And then there are factors that they are uh, required to consider, including the clinical value and comparative effectiveness, what was invested in research and development, including was there federal funding invested in research and development for that drug, does it address unmet medical needs? What are the current level of discounts and rebates? What are the revenues and units in Medicare? And then upcoming FDA approvals and information about the patent. Biopharma can submit evidence. Um, I think it's important to note in the law that this is very broad. Um, it doesn't say whether these factors move your price up or down. Is investing more in R&D a good thing or a bad thing um, in terms of your price? The CMS will respond with a price offer with a succinct explanation of how these factors were considered. However, again, there isn't much room for, for pushback and debate. Uh, the manufacturer can accept or counter offer. Um, and also I think it's important to note in the law that there is really no requirement for CMS to uh, respond to this counter offer. So then the final maximum fair price will be published and that will be the price um, that is uh, provided to through the Medicare program. And Kirsten, if I might add, I think it's interesting to note that when you look at the price setting factors that they're going to consider, it's it's kind of reflective of the naive view that the that the the economics of a biopharmaceutical company only include the the elements of drugs that are actually approved for sale. Um, and so, given the fact that that most the vast majority, maybe ninety percent of projects that biopharmaceutical companies undertake fail. Um, there, there's no calculation here in, about all of the, the funds that have been spent for drugs that didn't work when it comes to uh, the, the need for these companies to um, be profitable. Absolutely. Um, and, and to your point, it's unclear um, how this evidence is going to affect the price in the end. It's unclear what this will mean for biopharma companies and their willingness and interest to engage with you know, researchers who take federal funds, public-private partnerships, it would seem that would have a deterrent effect. 
there uh, is, uh, once the prices are released to be used and published in the Medicare program, um, there's a, a large penalty on the biopharma manufacturer for failure to provide the maximum fair price, but um, no mechanism for oversight um, if the price is given to non-Medicare beneficiaries. So it's a, it's a fairly one-sided um, enforcement mechanism. So, you know, there's some, some of the other things to consider uh, that are the second order effects of price setting. Um, first of all, is considering what this will mean for patient cost sharing. Um, so patients can benefit and that the, the new list prices of these drugs are gonna come down, but uh, patients may also find formulary placement uh, shifts. If the prices are driven down by the federal government, that means they are there's not as much room for rebates. Paradoxically, a newer drug that's not price controlled could come in with a higher list price and a bigger rebate um, and become you know, more appealing to an insurer uh, for formulary placement. So people may see either uh, loss of formulary access or you know, new restrictions on their drugs if a competitor comes in and says, hey, I want exclusive access and I'll give you this huge rebate and I know I can do that because the other drug is price controlled. And uh, cost sharing will be based on the maximum fair price. So again, another benefit to the patient is that uh, they will see um, somewhat of a less liability in uh, the portions of the benefit where they are paying uh, relative to the list price. Investment in R&D, um, I think this will have a pretty significant effect on the investment that is done later in life on biopharma medicines. Um, you know, in particular, you see phase four studies are often done in special populations, including people with comorbidities, pediatric studies, racial and ethnically diverse populations. Um, and so, you know, the returns to doing that uh, later and later in the life cycle are going down and we would expect that investment would also go down. Um, this will have a greater negative impact on small molecules relative to large molecules. Small molecules still are the biggest savings driver in the biopharma system. They tend to be less expensive. The technology is still a highly effective technology. And when uh, generics come on the market, the prices are driven down. Um, so this drug um, I think will, on the long run, likely increase costs for many diseases because it basically encourages more investment in these complex molecules relative to the small molecules. Hey, Kirsten, mm -hmm. um, I think this is such an important point and one, especially for policymakers, they'll be hearing from Incubate throughout the rest of this year and the next Congress. I know you covered it early on, but do you think you could connect back to why small molecules face that disadvantage in the nine and 13, just for people who might've missed that slide early on. Thank you so much for asking. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, the price setting is in effect for small molecules after nine years on the market. Um, so that, you know, the average time a small molecule is on the market is between 12 and 14 years. Um, so that takes off, you know, three years of potential uh, revenue gains, or at least dramatically diminishes them. Um, for a large molecule, the price setting is not in effect until 13 years on the market. So the large molecule future revenue is less harmed by this price setting policy. Um, so when you do that, <laughs> when you're a biopharma investor or a biopharma company thinking about developing a new drug, you know, the equation just became more, uh, the, the payoff or reward for investment just became more heavily weighted towards the large molecule. But I think it's you know unfortunate about the way this law was designed is it it's going to encourage it distorts investment uh, it's going to encourage investment in drugs based on a policy rather than based on potential need um, as much uh, I think it also will discourage investment in drugs that are for 
broad conditions uh, that affect a lot of people in Medicare. So is that sufficient? Or Jim, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, let me, uh, the, when you see this, this differential in the bill between uh, the nine and 13 years, it sort of begs the question is why would Congress do that? And that's it's it's not exactly apparent why that is. To some extent, I think it's a remnant of the fact that for small molecules under Hatch-Waxman, they are eligible for a five-year patent extension um, based on the amount of time that the they they were in um, clinical trials and the time it took the FDA to approve the drug. Um, and for biologics, when I was at Bayer, we negotiated that um, it would be a 12-year period before biosimilars could uh, have the the data. Um, that the innovative company did. So there's this sort of this there's sort of disparity to some extent uh, in the in the statute. But as you said, both small and large molecules tend to have roughly the same amount of time of market uh, exclusivity before they face competition. And so what this will do, and this is probably the most significant unintended consequence of the statute, is that it will, uh, undoubtedly drive investment away from small molecules into large molecules. And when I spoke to, to one Senate health staffer about this and, and, and the reasons for it, response is, well, it, it reflects Congress's uh, favoritism or, or preference for large molecules, which is, which is unfortunately naive. It is the case that, that large molecules, protein drugs are, are, are a newer class of drugs, a very exciting class of drugs that can do things that small molecules can't. But it remains the fact that small molecules can do very important things that large molecules cannot, but most importantly, cross the, the blood-brain barrier. So when you're looking at things like brain cancers, uh, CNS conditions like Alzheimer's and ALS and, and Parkinson's, which are not only um, terribly cruel, but, but expensive. It, it, is, it is very bad policy to, to uh, disincentivize investment in, in those things. And I, I hope at some point we can get the message to the president, um, who I consider a friend, but um, to understand that when you think about the cancer uh, moonshot that he initiated as a result of his unfortunate the result of son's brain cancer, to be driving uh, investment away from that kind of research just at the time he's relaunching the, the, the moonshot is a shame. So some of us are going to be uh, working to, to see if that 9 to 13 variants can be fixed. It won't be easy, but we are going to work on it. Yeah. And, and if I could just could chime in, Kirsten and Jim, you know, in addition to this unfortunate differential between small and large molecules, it's also worth reemphasizing what's on this slide, which is that this structure is going to significantly discourage investment in new indications, new dosage forms, and all the other post-marketing improvements and developments for approved products that have been just fundamentally critical in contributing to patient care and public health. So I think this is another unfortunate and unintended, you know, consequence of this, um, of this new framework. So, and then also considering unintended consequences that may drive up costs is uh, what this might mean for generic and biosimilar entry, particularly for drugs where a large proportion of the total U.S. sales are in Medicare. So drugs with conditions that disproportionately affect the elderly and disabled, particularly think about biosimilars, uh, the price differential between the brand and the biosimilar tends to be narrower anyway. 
Um, and so if the federal government now is pushing the price down, that uh, doesn't leave as much uh, opportunity for arbitrage, basically, for the uh, generic enter, uh, generic manufacturer to enter. And uh, the, those higher prices at the end of patent life is exactly what um, draws a generic or a biosimilar to enter the market. Um, and that's where they make a lot of their money is in that switch from the brand to the generic. So I think we can expect to see uh, maybe less competitive generic markets and in extreme cases, potentially even uh, markets where the brand does have a longer monopoly than you would have expected uh, at the end of patent life. John, should I keep going on the um, onto the inflation penalty? Yeah, I think so. Uh, and reminder, folks can use the Q and A. Um, but this is great stuff, Kirsten and crew. So, um, and this is something I think we've all heard uh, raised in policy discussions for years, uh, which is a penalty for uh, raising the list price faster than consumer inflation. Uh, remember, please, this is the list price. So, if a biopharma manufacturer has been raising their prices by 10 or 20 percent, but then giving that back in rebates, um, those rebates do not count um, towards uh, the inflation penalty. This will be a penalty that is effective almost immediately, um, indexed back to January of 2021. If a manufacturer raises their price faster than uh, consumer inflation, they are going to be required to give that back to the federal government for all the units sold in the Medicare uh, program. And uh, that will apply again to Part D as measured by the average manufacturer price and Part B. Um, there are limited exceptions for low cost drugs, certain biosimilars in Part B, but not Part D, the Part B preventative vaccines and drugs that are in shortage. Um, this also applies to the drugs that are going to be under the price control regime. Um, and there will be a separate penalty developed for the line extension drugs. Um, at least in the Medicaid program, uh, a line extension has a very broad definition. Um, it's not just your, you know, drug A and drug AXR. Um, it can apply back to drugs that have the same chemical. So it will be remain to be seen how this penalty will affect um, new uh, line extensions. Um, and uh, the patient coinsurance will be tied to the inflation adjusted price in part B, but not in part D. So the patient, uh, at least in the part B setting, does get some of the financial benefit of this uh, rebate penalty or inflation penalty and the savings accrue primarily to the federal government in both programs. So uh, thinking through some of the unintended consequences, all of us work in business and biopharma. Um, I think the first thing we can expect is higher launch prices for new drugs. Um, we saw this to an extent with Medicaid inflation penalties. This is a much larger incidence inflation penalty. And uh, you can anticipate that the new drugs will come on the market with higher launch prices that could be paired with discounts for formulary access. Um, again, I think this may also interfere with contracting and rebates for new drugs um, in a similar way that I described with the price setting. A competitor can enter the market with a very, very high list price and offer the insurer a very large discount knowing that their uh, in-market competitor is price controlled and couldn't possibly uh, offer the same size discount because they don't have the same flexibility to raise their list price. Um, so this could again end up paradoxically where we're going to see higher price drugs favored in the formulary and lower price drugs disfavored, which is I think opposite to the intent of the law. John, do you have a question? Yeah, Kirsten, I want to, just because you brought up this concept of rebates and discounts, Another area of a lot of focus was sort of this PBM, this middleman 
argument. There was some talk that Congress would address sort of the perverse incentives for high list prices that the PBMs are driving. You know, was that addressed in a meaningful way or did Congress sort of maybe move that one uh, down the road? That was not addressed in a meaningful way. It was not addressed in this law. Um, you know, I don't know if the intent that was the intent of the inflation penalty. It doesn't do that. Um, but no, the uh, there's no requirement to pass through the rebates. There's um, nothing new that would increase the transparency um, of discounts or to be more important, pass them on to patients, uh, transparent or not getting those discounts in the hands of patients is what's actually going to get help people take their medicines. And if I can add a little commentary there, that the uh, and that's a, a, a very significant failure of this whole approach that it did not address the PBM problem. And the, the, the PBMs have really evolved from their initial intention, which was, you know, A, B, and C companies, you all make relatively similar drugs. I have X number of million lives um, that I'm for whom I'm speaking. Whoever gives the lowest price gets the business. Uh, to now, it has evolved to whoever raises their price the highest amount to give me the largest rebate gets the business. And it's 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 really a, a perverse outcome. Um, there are many members of Congress who understand that this is a real problem, um, but there hasn't been a coalescence of uh, around a, a bipartisan solution to it yet. Um, but uh, and I think there's still a, a, a naive um, sense that PBMs are the good guys because they keep prices uh, down. So I, I think this is a major um, challenge that Congress needs to face, and many of us will be trying to get them to do that. Thank you. So moving on to the third provision, limits on out-of-pocket costs. Um, so there are a number of ways that the Inflation Reduction Act limits out-of-pocket cost exposure for patients. Um, so uh, insulin uh, was treated uh, distinctly in this law with insulin uh, patient costs being limited to $35 per month. If the drug ends up being um, price set, um, then that'll be 25% of the new price. And starting in 2023, there's no cost sharing for um, Part D covered adult vaccines and covers expanded in Medicaid and CHIP, which is the Children's Health Insurance Program for adult vaccines. And then out-of-pocket spending limits. And this is a big win for people who have a lot of chronic diseases and take a lot of medicines uh, who had really unlimited liability in the prior uh, Medicare system. Starting in 2025, there will be a $2,000 maximum out-of-pocket cap that will, um, that $2,000 maximum will grow over time. And um, beneficiaries will also have the option to spread out their cost sharing over time, so on a monthly basis. So those who can't afford to pay that entire $2,000 who are taking a very high-priced medication or medications will have the option to pay over time. Um, I already mentioned the coverage gap is limited. The catastrophic 5% coinsurance is limited. And certain third-party payments, meaning your insurance company payments, can count towards reaching that $2,000 out-of-pocket limit. So again, this will make this benefit much more predictable, much more affordable for patients. Also, starting in 2024, um, the partial dual eligibles, which are people who fell between 135% and 150% of the federal poverty level, will now be eligible for the same degree of benefit that people, the full duals who are the ones who are the even lower income people were uh, eligible for. So this will reduce their cost sharing expenses and uh, premium uh, expense. So that is something that uh, both improves uh, the affordability of benefit and the uh, social justice of the benefit, given that um, these are you know, still very low income people and uh, tend to be disproportionately in minority groups that have uh, poorer health outcomes uh, relative to whites. 
And Kirsten, I, I can't resist on that slide uh, making a little commentary, if I may. Um, the the, the $2,000 cap a year is, a, is the best thing about this bill, in my opinion. It's something that we've been pushing for for a long time. Having said that, uh, and the fact that it inflates upward is is the wrong way to go. That that should that should decrease over time. And the reason I say that is uh, way back in the earliest days of healthcare cost containment, uh, there was an expression which is uh, patients will consume as much healthcare as someone else will pay for. Uh, and so the idea was to you got to give the patient skin in the game so the patient makes more prudent decisions. And the analogy I use. Or the example I use, if you twist your ankle and you need an x-ray, you can either call an ambulance to take you to the ER, which might cost a couple thousand dollars, or you can get your neighbor to drive you to an urgent care center for that x-ray, which might cost a couple hundred dollars. If you have a, a big, maybe $3,000 deductible, that makes sense. And it's driving prudent uh, decisions by the healthcare consumer. But when it comes to prescription drugs, you don't, the patient doesn't have that kind of choice. Perhaps they have a choice between a brand and a and a, a generic for which they might pay a little bit more for the brand. But the fact of the matter is the patient has the illness, the doctors prescribe the medicine, the patient needs them the medicine. And all that an out-of-pocket cost does, even at two thousand dollars a year, is destroy adherence. Many patients will leave their, their drug on the counter because they can't afford it. And um, and that's um, that shouldn't happen at all. So um, I'd like to see that go down. And, and frankly, um, I, I'd like to see uh, Congress do something about out-of-pocket caps applying to um, prescription drugs in the commercial sector as well. I think it's an excellent point. Um, just to kind of add to that, the out-of-pocket cap will grow with the average per capita expenditure in Medicare Part D that's starting in 2023. I do know that the uh, out-of-pocket cap will grow uh, over time uh, at the same rate that expenditures in Part D grow over time. So uh, a small but high need group of patients uh, will be relieved of their open-ended out-of-pocket costs. So that is, as Jim mentioned, uh, one of the best things about this benefit. Right now, about 1.4 million people uh, spend more than $2,000 out-of-pocket. So given that that has been growing over time with the introduction of new specialty medicines and the aging of the population um, and the growing burden of disease, we can you know, expect that you know, probably closer to 2 million people over time will be able to benefit from this cap on their expenses. Uh, this will mean lower prescription abandonment and uh, less greater adherence. Um, and as Jim mentioned, um, this type of benefit design in more parts of the healthcare system uh, would be tremendously beneficial to health. Um, this is going to affect people who have uh, very high cost conditions, including cancer, rheumatoid arthritis, neurological conditions, and Parkinson's, you know, more than others um, because they have traditionally had the highest healthcare costs. You know, what we'll see is that others in the Medicare benefit won't see as much of a difference, um, but will likely see some premium growth. Um, and so I think the reactions to this will likely be mixed, um, given that the majority of people will not see as much of a difference. But uh, it's basically uh, distributing some of the costs and cost savings to people who are the most in need. Uh, and I guess sort of already mentioned some things on this slide. You know, I think some of the key one of the key points here is that there was really no emphasis on longer term savings, um, shifting the system more towards a payment for value and payment for outcomes. This is really a fairly narrowly focused piece of legislation um, on price and prices for the highest cost drugs, um, not necessarily for the drugs that have the least value or the drugs that have the least benefit. It's in many ways focusing on the drugs that have the most benefit because they have gained uh, the most sales in Medicare. 
Um, any other points on this, Jeff or Jim, sort of missed opportunities um, that we haven't mentioned? No, I think we mentioned the PBM was a missed opportunity, but other than that, no. So finally, the Medicare benefit redesign, we saved the most complicated for last. Um, I think many of you know, uh, in the status quo of the benefit, there's this sort of lumpy design where the patient has a deductible, then there's an initial coverage limit, and then there's a coverage gap where the patient's costs go up a lot, and the biopharma costs go up a lot, and then there was this catastrophic um, level of spending um, that you know a relatively small number of very uh, high-need, high-cost patients reached into. Um, in this catastrophic uh, portion of the benefit, the federal government took on a large share of the cost, um, the patient 5%, and the insurance plan uh, 15%. The insurance plan, of course, uh, recovers their money through the premiums um, and the cost sharing they charge the beneficiary. Uh, what has been happening over time is, again, with growing burden of disease, growing use of specialty medicines, that federal subsidy has been growing uh, faster than total costs in the benefit. And the proportion of the benefit that the government was subsidizing was just growing and growing. And that raised concerns that it was undermining um, some of the point of the benefit, which is it's intended to be costs are brought down through competitive negotiation and through plan management. Um, so in this new design, the coverage gap goes away. The, the benefit basically has three sections, the uh, deductible, which is still paid by the beneficiary. Now the beneficiary spends 25% of, it covers 25% of the cost on average in this uh, first coverage zone. And that can be in the form of co-insurance or co-pays. The insurer has to design the benefits. So the beneficiaries are paying 25% on average, but some will pay more and some will pay less depending on how the average works. And the biopharma company is picking up 10% of the costs um, through uh, a discount they'll provide to the federal government. The main difference is into this catastrophic zone now, the government subsidy drops down to 20%. The insurance plan will pick up 60% through their premiums and the money they collect from beneficiaries and the federal government in a subsidy. And the biopharma companies are picking up 20% of the cost for those higher cost patients. And the beneficiary liability goes down to zero because, of course, their expenses are capped. There are a number of uh, good things that come from this benefit redesign more predictable cost sharing. Um, certainly for the beneficiary, and um, again, because they have the ability uh, to spread their, their out-of-pocket spending over time, this should make it more affordable, and we should see fewer people walking away from the pharmacy without their needed prescriptions. It's important to make sure patients are aware of these new cost-sharing obligations and also that they have the ability to spread their costs over time. I think some of the unintended consequences of this is there could very likely be more access restrictions on higher-cost medicines. Part of why the catastrophic uh, subsidy was put in place in the first instance in the develop design of the law was to discourage plans from restricting access to high cost, high need uh, treatments. And of course, with plans um, having the uh, obligation to keep the premiums down and also generally wanting to have lower premiums to attract beneficiaries, I think we're going to see uh, more restrictions on higher cost medicines. And keep in mind, even if a medicine is in a protected class, there can be uh, step edits, high cost sharing, other limits to access, even if the drug is technically on formulary. Other thoughts on this one, Jeff or Jim? No, okay. Um, and this of course also means that biopharma manufacturers who develop drugs that are in these uh, disease states that are most likely to be taken by patients who reach the catastrophic benefit, their liability is going to go up because they will be paying that 20% of the spending in the uh, catastrophic zone. So this, of course, affects the expected return on investment for drugs in these therapeutic areas. 
So I think this is, here we are, the summary of some of the points that we've raised about the uh, provisions in the law, including the price setting, the redesign, the inflation penalty. I think a few important things to note is the federal government's costs will go down as a result of this, uh, and it helps to offset other costs in this legislation. Um, certain patients will see uh, pretty significant cost reduction, especially patients who were taking a lot of drugs and spending a lot of money in that catastrophic zone. Um, the value of investment in certain types of drugs, particularly small molecules for high need conditions like cancer, neurological disorders, um, will go down, especially the value towards the end of life, which will discourage investment in uh, post-market study, uh, has a potential to disrupt uh, or discourage the entry of generics and biosimilars. It has the potential to interfere with these rebate and contracting agreements between biopharma manufacturers and uh, insurance companies. And depending on how the evidence is used in the price setting negotiation, it does have the potential to either uh, to encourage the development of evidence to defend the value of the drug, but that remains to be seen. And I think particularly how the government uses that evidence to set price um, could also have further effects uh, what biopharma companies develop and who they partner with. All right, John, it's over to you. Thanks, Kirsten, Jim, and Jeff. Uh, that was so well done and thorough uh, while also accomplishing it in a fairly short amount of time. A couple questions uh, have come in or have been messaged to me directly. Uh, the first, very specific, uh, CMS, will they be publishing regulations about this? What can we expect from CMS in the months and years to come in terms of uh, regulatory both information as well as maybe opportunity to comment. So as I understand it, um, and and maybe one of my colleagues uh, can, can also answer it, there is limited opportunity to comment. Um, CMS is not required to uh, sort of defend the price that they uh, decide on. They will give an explanation. I think of it a bit of how you might see an ICER report now, where they sort of say, this is what we think is the cost effectiveness threshold. Um, here's the evidence we used, and there you have it. So uh, as I understand, um, there will not be a lot of opportunity for input and not a requirement to defend the pricing decision. I think the, the, it's the case that there are, <clears throat> CMS is under no obligation to, to uh, put guidances out. Um, they may, they may not. I would like to think that, um, that the CMS uh, and the bean counters therein will look at the particular drug and take look at the evidence and say, well, we don't really think the price needs to go down that far on this drug. I, I don't think that that's the way it's going to work. I think that their administration will always be, all administrations will always be under pressure to try to say, reduce spending as much as possible. And I think that will lead to, to, the, to maximum discounts that will be required. Yeah, and I think one of the criticisms that's been raised about this law is that it doesn't have a lot of process and doesn't have a lot of, therefore, protections for uh, companies that are going to be affected by the kinds of decisions that CMS is going to be making. So um, that may in turn lead to additional litigation, um, which would be expected in a situation like this as the law plays out in practice, but not, you know, compared to other authorities uh, in general in this field, there's just not much process or protection for the private entities that are going to be affected. Another uh, question came in sort of along something, uh, Jim, that, that you alluded to is, how is this going to affect healthcare costs overall? You said politically, one of the drivers is always going to be to drive down costs. 
in the grand scheme of our broader healthcare system, how much is this going to move the needle? Well, I, I would make this comment. Um, I, I think one thing that's likely to happen is, and I think Kirsten you know, spoke to this, is that the private payers are now going to demand uh, discounts um, that parallel what Medicare will be demanding. So, you know, that that's a that's a a significant impact on the healthcare system, but it's also going to further reduce the revenue available to for the, for the biopharmaceutical companies to um, uh, to 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 innovate more. Um, so I, I think, you know, I think, I think that that's a, that's going to be a, a very salutary effect that we can't calculate right now. I just um, like to add one point to that, John. If this law discourages the development of small molecules and discourages the entry of biosimilars and encourages more focus on smaller niche population drugs and higher launch prices, I think there's a very significant likelihood this will increase healthcare costs in the long run, um, not the short run, and certainly uh, make them less efficient. And again, you know, there's very few interventions in healthcare that are as effective as a small molecule pill. Um, when you think about, you know, we're going to live in a time where there's generic hepatitis C drugs um, is kind of amazing. So my gut is that in the long run, this will not help healthcare costs at all. Well, not only that, but I mean, you, I mean, think about the 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 cost of Alzheimer's, right? I mean, it's a trillion dollars a year in rising as baby boomers continue to to age out. Uh, hundreds of billions of dollars have been spent by biopharmaceutical companies in pursuit of trying to do something about Alzheimer's, uh, and uh, insofar as this will likely be one of the one of the areas of R and D that will now be less attractive. Um, it's it's really it's a terrible outcome that this is you know classic pennywise pound foolish yeah and I, I you know it's it's funny i was with a staffer who doesn't handle healthcare and and kept on talking about this as a major healthcare reform and i had to remind them that drug spending even writ large call it 10 or 20% depending on how you want to look at it is a comparably fairly small piece of the broader Healthcare spend versus hospitals and doctors and others, and does have to Kirsten, your point, these outsized rewards. When we can cure someone with hepatitis C, all the savings that don't show up in a ten-year budget window of that person not needing uh, a liver transplant or, or sort of advanced care. I'm going to sneak in one last question because um, I think it's such a great one. What's the impact? And Kirsten, I know you've done work in this space. What is the impact on something we all want to see? And that is innovation and diversity in clinical trials, um, life cycle management, uh, specific rare diseases, but especially clinical trials. We all agree we've got to see more diversity in clinical trials. Does this complicate those efforts in any way? I think it can. I mean, you still look at the populations that are being enrolled in the pivotal studies, right? So the studies that get the drug approved, the pre-launch studies, they're not representative of the racial and ethnic diversity in the U.S., uh, the post-market trials are often done on sort of special higher need populations, be they people with certain comorbidities who weren't included in the regular trial, which does, again, tend to bring in a more ethnically and racially diverse population, veterans, you know, there's all kinds of special studies that are done post-market. Uh, the value of doing those studies is going to go down um, and it'll closer and closer for the the biggest, most successful drugs, we've now said we're discouraging uh, investment in those drugs in new indications and in special population studies. 
So I can't imagine this is going to help increase the amount of evidence that's available for medicines, um, and uh, it's not going to help increase the diversity of that evidence. Um, so yeah, I think it's going to have a pretty significant effect on life cycle management. Think about things like HIV, where so much of the work has been done uh, post-market. Um, that could be a pretty pretty significant impact on science, the academic universities that depend on investment from biopharmaceutical innovations. Um, it's it's going to have downstream effects. Thanks, Kirsten. Any closing thoughts, Jeff or Jim? I just want to compliment my colleague and Kirsten on doing a fabulous job. Aww. Same. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, Thank you all for listening. Thanks to our audience for sticking out. We had no drop off over the entire presentation. So I will commend the experts at DLA Piper, Kirsten, Jim, and Jeff. We are so grateful to have you joining Incubate and Incubate's Policy Lab for this deep dive on the drug pricing provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, this presentation uh, will be made available at www.incubatecoalition.org. And we'll be following up with those of you in policymaking roles with an opportunity to dive even deeper. Um, but I think this is a great slide to close it on about some of the implications of this very large legislation. Thanks, everyone, for joining today. And thanks again to our incredible speakers. You've been listening to Making Medicine. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to leave a quick rating of the show. Just tap the number of stars you think the podcast deserves.